0: that we pray, amen. All right, you may be seated. So last week we saw Shifra and Pua, the two Hebrew midwives, defy and disobey the most powerful man in the world because they feared God. And they risked their own lives to save uh, the sons of Israel. And as such, God gave them a threefold blessing. And, and thus, this principle is seen throughout the pages of Scripture that whenever God's people defy tyrants or bullies or those who act as gods, uh, the Lord always blesses them. So this morning, uh, we're going to see the, the darkest chapter in Israel's history in terms of their captivity. Pharaoh thus far has attempted uh, two horrible um, crimes against Israel in order to stop them from being fruitful and multiplying. First, he enslaved them. Secondly, he ordered these midwives to murder the male babies, but with each attempt, it failed. It says, but the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And so Pharaoh comes forward now with his final solution. He commands his people to throw all of the male children into the Nile River. Pharaoh and all of Egypt with him became a dragon state. Whether Pharaoh knew it or not, uh, he and Egypt had become the serpent incarnate seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. And you see, um, what I want to convince you about this morning is that this is actually the story of all of human history. Uh, Human history is not what the pagans believe. The pagans believe in a repetitious cycle, uh, like season, spring, summer, fall, winter, and then it starts over again. So the pagan view of history denies that history is is an unfolding of an ultimate story with an ultimate finale. Nor is history uh, the view that the evolutionists believe, that that, uh, man through natural processes is progressing towards some secular utopia. The evolutionary view of history denies the categories of sin and the need for forgiveness from God. The Christian view of history is explained in one verse Genesis 3:15 Human history is the ever unfolding war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman Christ and his church versus Satan and the souls of the damned And this war is on display in every single epic in history. And in fact, this war explains everything that uh, humans experience. It explains the rise and fall of nations. It explains abortion. It explains persecution. It explains inflation. It explains famines. See, this story is the story behind every other story. So, So Pharaoh's Pharaoh putting to death uh, the sons of Israel here is simply the dragon taking up arms in this battle. But thanks be to God. Because what we immediately see is the Lord raises up a savior, lowercase s, Moses, who brings down the dragon through the power of God. This is not just an ancient event, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ on display. It is the end of the world on this display, and it is your life on display in this story. So here's our big idea this morning. The dragon's goal and his image, the dragon state, has always been to kill the seed of the woman, but in every epoch, a savior is born to slay him. So let's begin with our doctrine. And the first question is, is why am I calling uh, Egypt a dragon state? Is that just, you know, um, poetic license on the part of the pastor? No, it's not. Scripture calls Egypt a dragon. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10. Now, in this chapter, God is comforting his church. In verse 8, uh, he tells the church that the wicked will be eaten up like a moth, eats a garment. But, the, but God's salvation will be from generation to generation. And then he says this, in, well, the, the prophet prays this rather in verse 9. So he's calling upon the Lord in verse 9, awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab, that's a poetic name for Egypt, in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So Isaiah the prophet here is looking back on the Exodus account, the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, and he's proclaiming that this is when the Lord had pierced the dragon of Egypt. So by associating a dragon with Egypt, God is declaring that Satan has had uh, nations who have bore his image. There are dragon states precisely because they do Satan's bidding. As one author says here, quote, The dragon serpent, therefore, becomes in Scripture a symbol of satanically inspired, rebellious pagan culture, especially exemplified by Egypt in its war against the covenant people, end quote. So with with that in mind, scripture calls Egypt a dragon. Let's now turn back to Exodus 1 and see what this dragon does. Look with me at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, the horror of this event is is probably only surpassed by uh, child sacrifice to Molech when they would heat up the metal hands of Molech and put the baby in the heated hands. These babies were being thrown into the Nile, ripped from their mother's breast, either to drown in the depths of darkness or to be immediately devoured by crocodiles. This was absolutely um, horror at its its highest peak. And so the the question needs to be asked, why in the world would the Egyptians obey Pharaoh in this monstrous act? We know that the story behind the story, we know that Egypt as a whole was the seed of the serpent, but but what explains how, you know, that the average pagan Egyptian would would follow and participate in such in in humanity. And some have concluded the same thing about the last um, century. How could um, Germans in Nazi Germany uh, be participants in exterminating the Jews? How did Hitler convince his people to do such monstrosities? Well, both... Hitler and Pharaoh actually employed the exact same strategy. They both presented the extermination of these people as a virtue. Claudia Kuntz, in her book, The Nazi Conscience, wrote this, The Third Reich extolled the well-being of the ethnic German community as the benchmarks for for moral reasoning. They appealed not so much to malevolence as to ideals of health and hygiene and progress in their campaign to elicit compliance with policies that otherwise might seem cruel and violent. Ethnic Germans were exhorted to expunge citizens deemed alien and to ally themselves only with people sanctioned as racially valuable. And here's the line. The road to Auschwitz was paved with righteousness. Hitler for for years was convincing the people that the Jews were a, a moral problem in Germany and that it was a moral duty to cleanse Germany. That's exactly what Pharaoh does here. In verse 10, he says, the Jews are a moral problem. If we want to save Egypt, we need to do something. This is how we save Egypt. This is how we save the motherland. Yes, a little sacrifice is necessary, but it will be good for the whole. The road to the Nile was paved in righteousness, so-called righteousness. Furthermore, remember that Egypt had believed that Pharaoh was a god. He was the incarnate son of Re, the sun god. So the state was the all-powerful, all-benevolent uh, parent of Egypt, just like how status governments present themselves today. So not only is big brother, uh, big brother watching you, but Big Brother knows what's best for you. And so Pharaoh was believed by the Egyptians to be a political savior and who they depended upon for salvation. And so they obeyed this order, not only because Pharaoh presented it as a virtue, but also he commanded it from them as their savior. This is how to save Egypt. This was Pharaoh's final solution. It's the Holocaust of the ancient world. But as Matthew Henry once said, when men are planning the church's ruin, God is planning for its salvation. Just at the same time when Pharaoh's cruelty rose to its height, the Deliverer is born. So look with me at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now, we know from chapter 6, verse 20, that This man's name was Amram, his wife's name was Jochebed, and they, in fact, had actually already been married previous to this edict because they had two existing children, Aaron and Miriam. What do we know about Amram and Jochebed? Well, we know that they feared the Lord more than Pharaoh. In the hall of faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 says, by faith. Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And that's precisely what verse 2 of our passage says. The woman conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. God had had so knit together Moses in his mother's womb that when he came out, uh, he was marked with a beauty that helped the faith of their parents to rescue this boy. For three frightening months, they miraculously hid the cries of their child out of the earshot of the Egyptians. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, some commentators at this point in the scripture believe that Moses' parents were sinful here, that they were overcome with fear rather than faith. But I would argue that given what Hebrews chapter 11, 23 says about his parents, uh, that they were not afraid of the king's edict, I actually believe that this action was uh, motivated from faith and not from fear. So consider five reasons why I believe that they were acting on faith here. Five reasons why they were acting on faith. First of all, verse 3 says specifically, When she could hide him no longer. When she could hide him no longer. Think uh, for a moment with me. This is the language of ability. Think about the difference between would and could. Would is a variation of the word will. It speaks of volition. Could is a variation of the word can. It speaks of ability. The text does not say that she would no longer hide them. It says that she no longer had um, the ability to hide them. She couldn't hide them anymore. If the baby was discovered by the Egyptians, uh, he would have been murdered. So she is actually taking action to prevent that. Secondly, we read in verse three that she took him a basket. That word for basket, it's covered with the bitumen and pitch, is only found in one other place in the New Testament, and it is the same word uh, that Noah used for the ark. It's the ark of God. Um, uh, it, it was the ark that saved the seed of the woman that that. that uh, from, from the destruction of the seed of the serpent in the flood. So Jochebed, like Noah, constructed this ark to be a vessel of salvation. She carefully constructed it out of reeds, and she carefully covered it with the materials needed to waterproof it so that it would not sink. Thirdly, we read in uh, verse 3 that she put the child in it, and she put placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, no doubt, this was not some random location. Um, Question for you children, boys and girls. Um, When you take a bath, do your parents know where you take a bath at? Right. Uh, Do they know when you take a bath? Hopefully it's more than once a week. Um, Do they know when you take a bath? Probably because they're saying, go take a bath, right? So do you think these slaves, in all of their trips down uh, to the Nile, do you think that they knew when a certain royalty would be down at the river at a certain time to bathe? One commentator says here, quote, Moses' mother was aware of the fact that Pharaoh's daughter bathed in the Nile. Josephus tells us that Pharaoh's daughter uh, was named Thermuthis, meaning the great mother. She held a high and religious position in Egypt and had her own household. The Nile was worshipped as an emanation of Osiris and as life-giving. The daughter of Pharaoh thus bathed ritually in the Nile, a fact known To Moses' mother. Fourthly. Fourth reason why I believe that this was an act of faith. Is because in verse 4. We read. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would become of him. So Miriam went down with her mother to the Nile. Helped her gently and tenderly put this ark into the water. And then Jacobed told Miriam to stay there strategically. Jochebed uh, didn't leave Miriam there to see Moses get eaten by the crocodiles. Um, but to see if her plan would work. To see if God would deliver the seed of the woman in the ark like he did at ancient times. And then fifthly... The fifth reason why I think they acted by faith is because just like the Hebrew midwives, God gave Jochebed a threefold blessing for this act. Uh, The first blessing is that Jochebed got her son back. Um, Look at verses five through eight. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Now, you you see this turn of events. Now... Jochebed's gonna be able to take her baby home and it doesn't matter who hears that baby crying or who sees that baby crying because she is now under the protection of the princess of Egypt. The second blessing that Jochebed got was that now she got paid to take care of her own son. Hey, how about if we pay you for that as well? Uh, Look at verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away, nurse her for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So the house of Pharaoh is paying child support for the very child that would overthrow Egypt. Third blessing is that when this child was older... When he was finished nursing, he was taken to Pharaoh's court where he would be trained and educated. Look at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. As the princess's daughter, Moses would have received the best education in the world. Um, As one author noted, Moses was trained in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, and the fine art of diplomacy. In other words, he was being trained to overthrow the king in the king's house. And so we arrive then at our doctrine this morning. The dragon's goal has always been to kill the seed of the woman. But in every epoch, a savior is born to slay him. As one author says, all throughout history, Satan has been trying either to keep Jesus Christ from being born or to kill him as soon as he was born. That is the enemy's one goal throughout all of human history. But the dragon has always failed. And let's consider six marvelous proofs of this doctrine. Proof number one, Cain and Abel. Proof number one, Cain and Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? 1 John 3, 2 tells us that Cain was of the evil one. He belonged to the dragon. Killing Abel was an attempt to assassinate the seed of the woman. But what did God do? He raised up Seth in Abel's place. Eve said in Genesis 4.25, God has appointed for me another offspring. The the implication is, is another offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. The dragon failed. The seed of the woman lived on. Proof number two. Saul and David, Saul and David. Um, you know that Saul tried to murder David 13 times? He had at least 13 assassination attempts on his life from Saul. Was it only because Saul was jealous of David? Well, that was one reason, but not the only reason. it was because Saul belonged to the dragon in First 1 Samuel 1614. Uh, the scripture tells us that he was possessed by an evil spirit. And that evil spirit wanted to kill David. Why? Because to David was promised the throne of the king. Uh, Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Again, the dragon failed. The seed of the woman lived on. Proof number three, Athaliah and Joash. Athaliah and Joash. Uh, When Queen Athaliah was the wicked daughter of Jezebel and a worshiper worshiper of Baal, when she ascended to the throne of Judah, we read in 2 Kings 11.1 that she arose and destroyed all the royal family. So all these little boys in the line of Judah that were her own grandchildren, she killed them. This wasn't merely a political maneuver. She was a daughter of the dragon and she wanted to wipe out the seed of the woman. But she was defeated because a nurse took little baby Joash and preserved him, and then he came back and Athaliah off with her head. Dragon failed, the seed of the woman lived on. Proof number four Haman and Esther. Haman and Esther, that wicked prime minister of Persia, Haman, he passed a law to execute all the Jews in the world. But there were two saviors that were raised up, Esther and Mordecai, and they frustrated his plans. In the end, Haman, that son of the dragon, perished, and the seed of the woman lived on. Proof number five, Herod and Christ. As we're reading this story this morning, hopefully, you see, wait a minute, that's the story of when Christ was born, precisely. Um, when King Herod heard that Christ was born, he became Pharaoh reincarnate, and he sent forth his soldiers uh, into Bethlehem to kill all of the male children of Bethlehem who were two years old and younger. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. But what did God do? He sent Joseph and Mary into Egypt with their son. The dragon died. The seed of the serpent lived on. And then finally, proof number six is the cross and Christ. The cross was a weapon of the dragon. This is the, the ultimate fulfillment of our doctrine this morning. When the dragon and the rulers of that age crucified the Lord Jesus, they believed that they had won. The disciples believed that they had lost. The disciples were hiding. They were scared. They, they thought that they wasted the last three years of their life. But the dragon and the his image bearers, they were tricked. And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, and 8. It says that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the secret and hidden wisdom of God. The crucifixion of Christ was hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God destroyed the seed of the serpent, with the weapon of the seed of the serpent. The serpent bit his heel, but in doing so, the serpent's head was crushed. When Christ rose from the dead, he utterly destroyed the dragon. And John wrote about this very thing in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, verses 4 through 5. Listen to the dragon language. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. When was God, when was this child caught up to God? when he ascended into heaven after his victorious resurrection and he now sits at the right hand of God and he is reigning until all his enemies are under his feet. Amen. So in our passage, this is what's being played out. Pharaoh played the dragon. Moses played the savior. Beloved, this is what all of history is about. Children, Boys and girls, this is why you love the stories that you love. This is why you love Lord of the Rings. This is why you love Spider-Man. Because a dragon, a great villain, rises up and all seems lost. This dragon is bent on stealing and killing and murdering everybody. And he gains victories, victories, bloody victories. And darkness swallows the souls of men. And all hope is lost. Defeat is certain. And then... Right at the right moment, in the fullness of time, a child is born, a son is given. And he defeats the dragon at the cost of his own life, showing the breadth and height and length and width of his love, a love that surpasses all understanding. It's the story behind every story. So that's our doctrine. The dragon's goal has always been to kill the seed of the woman. But in every epic, a savior is born to slay him. So let's move then to our duty. And our first duty is to warn those who still belong to the dragon. If you're here this morning and you still belong to the dragon, dear friend, let me warn you, if you believe the Bible has no authority, that it is not the word of the living God, that it is just some collection of fables, then, then let me tell you, you are a fool. From what we have just heard, the authenticity of the scriptures, of the Old Testament writings are shining forth as as brightly as the sun. These Old Testament scriptures were written centuries before Jesus Christ ever put a foot on earth. And they all tell the same story. They are all strands of the same tapestry. They all vindicate one unassailing truth, that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God and he's the savior of the world. As one author has said, that God has been preparing to tell this story uh, to tell this story in living color for 4,000 years before Jesus came into the world. Oh, how great this man must be. Who has been telling a story for 4,000 years? We'd be lucky if we were the story of a book or the story of a day. Jesus was the story of ancient times from the beginning of the world up until his death, burial, and resurrection. And he has been the story for the last 2,000 years after that. Every hero in history points to him. Every deliverance points to his deliverance. Every sacrifice is an echo of his greater sacrifice. Every victory is a faint um, reminder of His great victory. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and was and is to come, the Almighty God. And all who believe on Him, all who confess His name, have everlasting life Everlasting happiness. They will experience all the joys of God at his right hand forever. But all who refuse to come to him, to confess their sins, to believe on him, invite ruin and misery and heartache for everlasting ages. Dear friend, if that's you today, call on Christ. He is a friend of sinners. He's the only remedy, the only mediator between God and man. And this is what Jesus himself said. He says, whoever believes in him will not be condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. It brings us then to our second duty. Our second duty is to comfort ourselves. Comfort for all who have received this great Savior. Romans 15.4 tells us that for uh, whatever was written in former days was written. So former days, Exodus, was written for our instruction that uh, through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. The birth of Moses is to give you hope. Hope, consider, consider how God has governed every detail of this story. We, we could speak all day about the faith of Moses, his parents, and their plan in saving his life, but without question, it was God in his secret providence that was controlling every detail. Nothing in this story was by chance. God had blinded the eyes of the Egyptians from discovering Moses for three months. God had softened the heart of the princess that when she found him in the river, she would love him and adopt him as her own son. God had moved Pharaoh's heart to allow this Hebrew boy to be in the palace and even train him up for his future overthrow. Every detail in this account was under the watchful eye of Almighty God. Why should that be a comfort to you? Well, for two reasons. Number one, ask yourself, why did God protect Moses? The answer is, is so that he could save Moses. You and I and all who believe on Christ's name. The salvation of Moses meant the salvation of Israel, which meant the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would come into the world, which meant that he would live for righteousness, die on a cross, be buried, and then be raised again from the dead, all for sinners. When God stretched out his mighty hand and delivered Moses, your deliverance from sin and death and hell and Satan was forever secured. The second reason why this should be a comfort to us is because God's secret and special providence over Moses is the same secret and special providence that he has over you. In this respect, Moses is not very special because he gives the same special and secret providence to all the elect of God. Uh, Listen to what the Belgic Confession says about God's secret care for his elect. Quote This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance but only by the arrangement of our gracious heavenly father who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under his lordship so that not one of their hairs on our heads um, can fall to the ground for they are all numbered. Nor even let a little bird fall to the ground without the will of our father. In this thought we rest knowing that God holds in check the devils and all of our enemies who cannot hurt us without divine permission and will. Loved ones, your salvation and God's caring for you are inseparably linked together. If he saved you, he will most certainly care for you. Romans 8.32 says that... um, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also graciously with him give us all things? So God already gave you the greatest gift, Jesus Christ, in his death and burial and resurrection. Surely he cannot fail to give you small things like your care and provision and love. So question, loved ones, what are you afraid of in the world today? What strikes fear in your heart? Listen to what the psalmist says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What are you you worried about? What are you anxious about? Jesus tells you if you're anxious, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than the birds? Have you given yourself over to despair? What are you despairing over? Dear believer, the Savior is on your side. No matter what happens to you in this life, nothing can touch your soul. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them from my hand. You have an invincible soul. This is why Martin Luther jones used to say Christians should be the happiest people on planet earth. Nothing can touch your soul, not bombs or bullets or propaganda or status. Nothing, nothing can touch your soul. So if you feel like you're in the Nile right now, if you feel like you're in danger of drowning, if you feel like you're in danger of the beasts bringing you under into the deep, then take courage. Wait on the Lord. You are in the ark of God, who is Christ Jesus himself. You cannot sink. You cannot be devoured by the dragon. Nothing can defeat Christ's power because the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. Nothing can thwart Christ's wisdom because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest of men. You already have victory. Rest in the ark. Rest in Christ. It brings us then finally to our delight this morning. Verse six in our passage says that when Pharaoh's daughter saw the baby, she had pity on him. Other translations say that she had compassion on him. In other words, this Egyptian princess loved the Savior, lowercase s, of Israel. It says in the passage that he became her son. What we see from this is that the Exodus account is not merely about God saving Israel. It's a reminder that Jesus came to save the world, including the Egyptians. There were many Egyptians that actually left with Moses on the Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, verse 38 says that a mixed multitude went out with them. And the prophet Isaiah looks into the distant future and speaks of a day when um, Egypt will be saved. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 19, verse 18. The first half of the chapter is God uh, punishing Egypt for their rebellion, for their dragon-like characteristics. But then the latter half of the chapter speaks about Egypt's future restoration in Isaiah chapter 19 verse 18 it says this in that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan it's borrowing the idea from the promised land they're speaking the heavenly language and they swear allegiance to the lord of hosts one as an only one Of these will be called the city of destruction. John Calvin interprets what this means in his commentary. He says this, God does not merely promise that five cities in Egypt would be restored, for how inconsiderable would such a restoration have been, but generally that five cities out of six would be saved. We know that the cities in Egypt were very numerous, Let us suppose then that there were a thousand cities in it or more. God is saying that only the sixth part will perish and that the rest will be restored so that only a few will be destroyed. Meaning there's coming a glorious day when there will be a five to one ratio of Christians over non-Christians in that former dragon state. And I would suggest to you the rest of the world. Um, This work certainly began at Pentecost when it says that there were Egyptians there who heard the message of the gospel that that Peter preached. But the magnificent multitude and extensiveness of this prophecy that Isaiah made has not yet been fulfilled. This looks forward to a revival that we have not yet experienced. And this is part of the promise of the gospel. I think that we often underestimate the magnitude of what the gospel says. John chapter 3 verse 17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world may be saved through him Now if you were a baby Christian how would you hear that verse That the world might be saved through him. I would suggest that you would hear it in two distinct ways. Number one, you would understand that Jesus would save people from every tribe and tongue and nation from all over the world. But I would suggest you would also hear it the second way, that Jesus would eventually save the majority of the world, that the dragon would not succeed in pulling the majority of the human race down into hell, but that Jesus would have the ultimate and decisive victory in this world. Let me conclude with this exhortation. Be strengthened in your faith. Be strengthened in your faith. Dear congregation, throughout history, the dragon has always had the greatest earthly powers on its side. The power of Egypt, the power of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and yet none of these dragon states have ever been able to succeed. They've all joined the dustbin of history. How many times has the church of God been brought to the very brink of ruin to be like the ark floating in the Nile with crocodiles snapping around it, only to be rescued and then to see her enemies come to a ruin? Pharaoh drowned in the Nile. How ironic. Um, Goliath's head was cut off with his own sword. Haman was hung on his own gallows. Satan sealed his fate with the weapon that he chose to kill Christ. The scripture demonstrates that we should look at the world today with great anticipation of the future. The scripture promises bright days ahead, but there are great difficulties, difficulties that seem to be insurmountable. God had promised Israel a land flowing with milk and honey, but Pharaoh stood in the way. God promises his people things that eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man. But the new dragon of our day stands in the way. What do you suppose will happen to that dragon? Is this the one dragon that will succeed out of all the other dragons that have ever existed before? Will not this dragon also succeed? be pierced and cut into pieces. He will be defeated like Pharaoh of old. Be strengthened in your faith, loved ones. God has always been faithful to his promises since the beginning, and he will be faithful still. Neither dragon states nor the gates of hell can prevail against the church. We have a risen Savior who has already overcome the world. And he promises to reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Let's pray.